Welcome to the Chapter 49 podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. I'm a volunteer with NTEU Chapter 49 and a a volunteer with the chapter. Uh, Chapter 49 represents most IRS employees in the state of Indiana. And this is our weekly podcast that uh, we try to provide uh, to give everyone an update on what's happening. And of course, as always, we have our chapter president, Duncan Giles. And Duncan, you and I talked about uh, what we needed to discuss this week. Uh, Sometimes we have to stretch a bit. We have no problem. Plenty of content this week. Yeah, it certainly looks that way, Larry. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Uh, We are recording this in the morning. You may have be listening at any time of the day. I want to start off with a message that many people listening to this may have already seen in their email, or what, I guess it's not email, in, in the internal system, because the IRS management has, has posted a message about awards. Now, I'm just going to read this message. It's about four paragraphs. Just bear with me. And this, again, is a quote from what the management has now posted online. The IRS is implementing a simpler, more effective award pool structure, ensuring high-performing bargaining unit employees receive awards. Watch the new SHOTS video to learn more about the new award pool structure. The new structure is based solely on business unit and designated occupation. The previous awards process required about nine months to administer. Award pools were manually configured and reconfigured annually, requiring multiple steps, reviews, and revisions to ensure employees were in the correct award pool. This new structure allows for automations and efficient configuration of award pools. This change also reduces the number of award pools. In addition, the new system creates a transparent structure for employees to understand and bases awards on employees' rankings within the occupational series. The structure will allow employees to have equal ground in competing for an award and will promote fairness and consistency within business units. I will close the quote there. This is one of those situations where you read something like this and you try to respond and you just think, where do I begin? So, Duncan Giles, please begin. This is one of those things where I read this and I was like, oh, I must share this with uh, a few of our previous guests. Um, Ken Moffat, our director of national negotiations, and Doreen Greenwald, the assistant to national president Tony Rudin, immediately came to mind because I know how much that they would appreciate this fine gesture on the IRS. Actually, in my mind, eyes mind, I was hoping that... Uh, that they were drinking something, and I would visually appreciate the spit take that had to have occurred once they read this fine piece of fiction. Um, this system was set up and changed because the IRS, it was too difficult for them. So instead of saying, hey, you know, we're going to group similar types of employees regionally together oh, no, we're going to do it nationwide. It'll be much better for everybody. So we're going to have all RAs across the country be in one pool, all customer service reps across the country be in another pool. Basically what this does is tell people, you know what, it's the top 55% still that get awards in a particular pool. 
but I would, I'm struggling to imagine any pool that if you don't have an outstanding, a 4.6, uh, at least rating and a outstanding that you're not going to get an award. So they've effectively sliced thousands of people from the awards. Yeah. And I think that when I read this, all I could think about was the, and, and, and we've, you know, I think, uh, chapter 49 before this podcast, uh, try to communicate to the membership of this union and to those we represent within the IRS that this system that the management wants to implement is simply, I don't think it, it, it's not going to work well, and I'm going to explain why I think so in a moment. And you, I'm sure you'll, you'll chime in as well. But NTEU went to the legal mat on this. And, and you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose within that civil service appeal system. And, and NTEU did everything, absolutely everything, to stop this system from being implemented. And I firmly believe, just based on my experience, my long years as a union representative going back to the 1980s, having been a manager for six years in the end of my career, that this is a system which will not treat Indiana IRS employees well. And and we'll find that out in a moment in, in not too distant future here. But the reason I believe that is because we just, as, a, as an agency, do not have uh, a system that is uniform. I mean, if you go to another part of the country, everybody is like walking on water, whether they are or not. I mean, you could be a... Uh, a high performer in some parts of the East Coast come to Indiana and they don't think you're that great at all. And we don't have a uniform system for uh, a uniform enough system for evaluating employees. So what I'm afraid is going to happen, and I really want your view on this, Duncan, this is my view, is that people working in Indiana, because it traditionally uh, the management in Indiana is a little a little more demanding in some cases more, much more demanding when uh, we we all come up for our annual evaluations so I think uh, although those are really nice words the management put onto that posting and I'm and I have to give credit to the people who do internal communications they really outdid themselves on this. I think what we're going to find is that in a, from a, uh, when we find out who does and does not get awards, we're going to have some very angry people. And I think they're going to understand why NTEU went to the mat to keep the, the system we had before. So please react to that. Yeah, you're exactly correct. And a couple of points that you made there is, you know, that's why I wanted to make sure that uh, Ken and Doreen had it because they were instrumental in fighting against this as well as, you know, our national president and vice president, Tony Reardon and Jim Bailey, and the chapter presidents that worked on this, it's, there's no fair objective system. The way that employees are graded, like you said, some of them may walk on water in the coast, but in the Midwest or in the South, they may judge them more harshly. So those folks, even though they're doing the same type of work and possibly even doing it better because the management is taking a look at it subjectively instead of objectively on what they need to do to hit these critical job elements, they're going to be left out of awards even if they've gotten awards, you know, the previous several years beforehand. So it's it's not a, uh, 
It's not going to be fair to a lot of people. They're going to be upset. We totally understand that. And that's why NTU fought so hard against IRS doing this, just because of that, because they have no idea what it's going to do to their employees' morale. We know. We've told them. But apparently they didn't care. And I think they're going to be up for a rude awakening when they start dealing with their own employees who are going to be very angry about this. And when when, uh, when you and other chapter officials start you know, get, getting the complaints, we're going to tell the employees we did everything as, an, as a union that could be done. We went to the mat legally. We did everything we could. We, hap- we just happen to lose in that system right now. And uh, it's totally, totally the system management is put together. I want everybody to know that. They are totally yep. responsible for this. And the other part of this is... I can see across the country a great many more grievances being filed on appraisals because everybody's going to realize, hey, I need to get to that 4.6 and outstanding rating, so I need to file a grievance on my appraisal because if I don't get there, I'm not going to get an award. And we told, again, the bargaining folks told them, this is what's going to happen. IRS basically said, we don't care. This is how we want to do it because it'll be easier on us. And so you reap what you sow. Well, and they say it's easier on us. They may think so on the front end. I think you're exactly right. Once the avalanche of uh, of uh, appraisal grievances start to pile up, they may find their managers are going to complain then because they're going to be overly burdened about this. It's the group managers, the first level manager that will be dealing with the, the um the, the gist of these, and of course you appeal later, but the, but the hard work on any grievance is done by the union official and by the first-line manager, right? Yep, and labor relations. All three groups are going to be overwhelmed by a lot of the grievances on this, and it's something that, you know, the folks at the high level, the, you know, the 20,000-foot level, don't really apparently care about. Once... I- once this is known and people realize they are or are not going to get awards this cycle, do you want to hear from these people who feel they've been shafted? Absolutely, because we're going to be, you know, if they, especially if they're close, if they've gotten awards in the past and they're close and they believe their appraisal's not being fair, that they should be rated at this higher level, then they're going to need to be prepared to, uh, you know, come to the union and file grievances. And, you know, this is something, this is their redress. This is the way that we can correct this. This is right now the only way we can correct this. So at this point, I, I, I just have to warn people that there are going to be a number of IRS employees, bargaining unit employees in the state of Indiana who are quite accustomed to receiving an award for the last several years, year after year, may not get an award this year. Just brace yourself. It may happen. I, that's the message that I think we're all trying to, to put across to people locally, correct? Exactly, yeah. And depending upon the group that you're in, you know, in the past, it could have been a 3.8 or a 4. Uh, a 4.2, a 4.4 could have gotten you awards, depending upon what your profession is and your group. But now I think it's going to be extremely tough to get anything uh, blown outstanding in a 4.6 to get an award. So we just want people to be prepared for that. 
My message uh, to the top managers who uh, advocated for this new system, be careful what you ask for. You might get it, and you may be sorry. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just the way I look. So bottom line, just, just brace yourself. If you get an award, fine, great. We, we're glad you got one. But if you did get one, maybe it's less than it was before, or you don't get an award at all. Talk to Duncan Giles. Talk to your local uh, talk to your uh, your local steward if you wish to do that. Uh, I'm afraid, Duncan, uh, the the it's going to create some work for you, but you don't really mind in this case, do you? No, not at all. And the the problem though is going to be that appraisal grievances have to be uh, grieved within 15 work days of receiving them. So for the vast majority of employees, that time is already going to be passed and there's not going to be much we're going to be able to do until tell people, you know, be prepared for next year. And, may, and, and that gives you time to prepare for the next cycle, correct? Exactly. You, you tell people what they need to put together and you can start that process now. So we've spent a lot of time on this, but for good reason. We want everyone to know what's coming in the state of Indiana, and it's going to happen in other parts of the country as well. Uh, we had regional uh, pools for a, a good reason because these different parts of the country do tend to evaluate differently. Now that IRS has um, received what they wanted, a national system, uh, let's see where we go from there. Any other comments uh, on, on the awards pool before we move on? No, just like you said, it's not going to be just Indiana. This is going to affect folks across the country. Want to talk about the continuing resolution? It always comes down too many times to will we have a government shutdown? There actually was a day or two recently when it looks like it looked like the political parties, which are already at loggerheads over a number of issues, uh, were prepared to allow a government shutdown to happen. As strange as it may sound in an election cycle, um, but it appears just uh, based on the the media reports and word that you have been receiving from the I from the um, IRS, but the NTU Legislative Department and 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 our contacts on Capitol Hill. The House has already passed a continuing resolution through December 11th. It got overwhelming support. I think only 30 or 40 people voted against it. That's what it had way over 350 votes, which is a big bipartisan vote. It looks like the Senate will go along with it. How close were we to a dispute over this? There were a couple of things in there that um, gave some potential worry Somebody was asking the odds. People always contact me going, what are the odds on a shutdown? And I was saying, well, you know, up until a couple of days ago, I would have said about 2%. I wasn't real worried about it. And then uh, cropped up with uh, money for farmers and credits for them. And I was like, okay, it's possibly up to 25%. But it, it looks, as you said now, that it's going to be settled down until December 11th. Now, what happens after December 11th, especially with what's going on in D.C. and what possibly could be happening with results of elections and lame duck folks in Congress and possibly the White House, God only knows. But as it looks right now, we should be good until that December 11th date. All right, and you're right. What happens on December 11th may also be impacted by everything else that may or may not be going on by that time. But uh, at least now it looks like the continued resolution is, is, is about to, to be enacted, so there'll be no shutdown at least uh, through December 11th, which takes us past the election, we hope. 
Um, all right, so that's that. That's that, and I, I think that we've dodged a bullet. I want to say one quick thing, though. Uh, I read a lot of messages uh, from Jake Sherman. He's covered uh, Capitol Hill as a reporter for a long time, currently works for Politico. He put a, f- uh, a post up on uh, Twitter today at, that one of the major um, investment houses downgraded the growth of the American economy. Listen to this. Because the Wall Street lobbyists were certain that there would be some kind of additional stimulus tied to this continuing resolution. It's almost like, were they paying attention? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's talked about that. And and yet they were somehow convinced that that was going to happen. And uh, I just found that interesting that there was never a discussion of that in recent weeks anyway. Uh, I mean, there hasn't been an agreement on an addition or a continuation or a change in the stimulus. It's just sitting basically nowhere at the moment because of of political disagreements. Yet, uh, yet, and it was a major house. It was one of the major investment houses you would think would know what's going on. Just said, hey, we're going to down, like by 3%. I mean, it was a big downgrade, like overnight, because the CR did not include stimulus. I found that amazing. Uh, that's that's just scary yeah. because you're you're absolutely correct. Those were never joined at any point at all. You know, there's obviously good discussion points on whether there needs to be another stimulus or not on both sides, but that's never been connected to a continuing resolution. And there were sometimes some federal employee issues possibly tied to those, but when we that's a whole other issue. That's one of those things you just don't know what will happen until it happens in, in Congress. Let's move on to whether it's safety leave. We talked last time about medical certification, which will now be required uh, from those who wish to continue to be on weather and safety leave. But there is an aspect of this for teleworkers, so please tell us what that's all about. Yeah, we do have some folks out there who have said, I cannot come into the office due to my high risk of COVID-19 at all. If, you know, not to do mail, pick up cases, do anything. I just want to make sure employees are aware that it's very possible management could come back and say, hey, look, you know, we're getting, you know, if people who are on weather and safety leave can no longer self-certify, we're not going to allow you to self-certify and we're going to want to see medical documentation that you are indeed high risk for COVID-19 so you don't have to come into the office. So just want to make sure that everyone is aware of the impact of this. So just yeah, be aware that you, if you're teleworking, you still may need to provide this documentation. And it should be noted that the service uh, simply says if you wish to continue on weather and safety leave, this documentation is required. Had you self-certified before, there's, no, there's not going to be any questioning of that as far as we know. We're really moving forward on this. And uh, if you wish to continue, you just have to document it medically. So I, I assume I've got that correct. Exactly. Okay. Here's something that is happening throughout our society. In fact, I was uh, some weeks ago listening uh, to a government meeting, the health uh, board locally, talking about what do you do when you put in place a requirement for social distancing and and mask wearing, and people just simply refuse to do it for for whatever reason they may have in their own mind. 
So it's come up now uh, within the IRS offices where people are working in offices now, to some extent at least. What happens if, if there's simply a refusal to social distance or wear masks? I mean, it should be noted that not, not every IRS office even has a manager working out of that office. And some of them who are, you know, working out of offices are working out of their homes anyway. So uh, I guess the question came up at some recent meetings with management and, and union officials. What happens in a case where employees simply refuse to social distance and or wear masks? And what answer did you get? Right now, it's a really gray, murky area that there hasn't been a whole lot of guidance on, um, you know, because it happens in, you know, I've seen it here in the Indianapolis Federal Building, but I know that it's happened much more in places like service centers, um, call sites that are more staffed up, where people aren't wearing masks properly. I haven't seen anybody not wearing a mask, but you know, either wearing uh, it under the nose, which is always effective, or my favorite, like an extended earring where they just have it over one ear. Um, you know, the signs are very clear out there that you must be wearing a mask. You know, you must be doing social distancing. And if people aren't complying, who's going to enforce that? Like you said, a lot of the managers aren't on site. Even if a manager is on site, you know, what the only thing that they can do is saying you're not groomed appropriately for work and send you home, which is going to be on your own time, not going to be on leave and lead to potential discipline. But most managers, the vast majority aren't doing that. Or if it's not a manager that's directly over you that notices it. So there's a lot of confusion on trying to make sure. And depending upon where you are, this may or may not be a huge problem or issue. The vast majority of people I see are complying, but there are still some, and they may not even be from this agency. We've got some power walkers that like to come onto the floor that I'm on that I know are not IRS employees. I don't even know what agency they work for, but I do know that I have spoken to a couple of them and told them that they need to wear their mask properly, um, just because that's the type of guy I am. But there are going to be a lot of people that aren't like myself that don't want to get into that kind of issue or confrontation. So it's, it's definitely an issue. Yeah. And I think it should be noted that the NFL fined coaches a hundred thousand dollars each for not wearing their masks on the sidelines this past cycle. And, and the franchises even more. But the franchise has got a $250,000 uh, fine for not enforcing it like they're supposed to. So that's uh, those guys make a lot of money, and yes, the owners have. But that's they keep happening. That's going to hurt. So they they got the message that uh, you know you're so and I and you know if if this continues, they can have a progressive discipline policy as well. This could lead to suspensions of owners, uh, uh, management of pe people within these teams, and even the coaches themselves. So. Uh, you know, there are parts of society who are realizing this is important. So uh, do we have any idea when this might finally be settled? Because as I said, it's not just government agencies. It's all of society trying to figure out uh, effective enforcement on this. I, are we any closer to a solution? Are we still sort of in, in the wilderness on this? I think that they are looking um, to, in the IRS's case, 
for guidance from the top levels to see how they want to, they do want to handle enforcing this. But right now, it's just common sense, folks. You know, whether you agree with it or not, the science shows that wearing a mask help, social distancing helps, and it's the rules in the federal buildings, in social security, in, you know, all government building space, IRS space. So if you're in IRS space and you are, you know, walking around, going into a particular office, not in your own cubicle, but going someplace else to the bathroom, to see somebody else, to talk to somebody in another cubicle, put on your mask. Make sure that you are maintaining social distance. It's not that tough. And we just need to police ourselves for the vast majority of this. All right, to, moving to another subject, as we all know, the government does not move quickly. There's been a, a law on the books for paid parental leave for federal employees for a while. You have been on the group that is trying to work out the final version of this. You know, Duncan, you and I both have adult children. We would have loved to have had this when we were parents of young children. But thank goodness we're going to see some employees get some benefit from that. So talk about paid parental leave and where it's at and where it's going. Yeah, starting on October 1st, if you have a birth of a child or adopting a child, things of that nature, uh, you're going to be allowed 12 weeks, up to 12 weeks of paid leave to be able to care for that child or, in the case of adoption, uh, bond with that child, depending upon how old they are, right from the start. So this is going to help new parents um you know, take the time to do what they need to do without worrying about having to have a paycheck. Moving on to another issue, voting is coming up. Uh, uh, early voting will begin very soon in Indiana. I'm not sure. It's, it's, I don't think it's started anywhere. In my county, it doesn't start until for f- several days uh, more. Uh, but also, you know, the in Indiana, you still have to have a reason for an absentee ballot. There are a lot of reasons, including just being out of town the day of the election. So uh, I want to just say a couple of words. I, I do several podcast series. I do these, but I also uh, do a podcast series locally where I live in, in Fishers, Indiana, which is in Hamilton County, Indiana. And I did a, a podcast interview with our county clerk, Kathy Williams, and she made it very clear that if you do file an absentee ballot, the main reason that they are rejected and that ballot might be rejected is if you do not sign it. And, and, you know, it's also another thing they find is, you know, you don't, you see, you file a joint tax return, but you don't file joint votes. <laughs> you, you have to sign your own name and your spouse cannot sign your name for you. It needs to look like other signatures that you have done. But uh, voting is now going to begin. It's already started. If, if you want to do absentee ballot, and uh, early voting will begin very soon in the state of Indiana. Duncan, a few words from you on that. I cannot stress enough that you need to vote. I'm a huge, huge proponent of always voting. I voted in every election since I first started voting in 1980. And I'm a huge proponent of voting. And for federal employees this year, you know, you hear this almost every time, but I truly believe this. It's never been more important to make your voice heard. And so you need to avail yourself. If you have the option to do a mail-in vote, make sure that you do. Make sure that you get that 
uh, ballot in early. Don't put it aside, look at it, and say, oh, I'll get to it. With the issues that we've had lately with the uh, post office, we need to make sure that you know you get your vote in early if you're going to mail in. If you're going to do early voting at a in-person site, you know, make sure that you you know budget your time for that. Just please, please, please take the time to vote. It is so so important. Um, you know, part of our democracy. It's part of it's a right. It's an obligation. And it's something I so strongly believe in. So make sure that you do whatever you need to do so your voice is heard. We're recording this on September 24th. Just a reminder for those listening before this date uh, that check if you're registered. Registration deadline is October 5th in Indiana. Uh, That's why our early voting hasn't started. The registration deadline has to pass before that can happen. Uh, but you also, uh, go, there's a nice website. It's called Indiana Voters. What, what I would suggest you do is just Google Indiana Voters and it'll come up and you can check and see whether you are registered or not. And you can, it's very easy to register in Indiana. So you can next, I think you can, for most people can do it online, not in every case. So uh, you have to make sure you're registered. You have to be registered to vote. If you normally, if you've been voting in the last few elections, you are registered. If, but just if there's any question in your mind, you can check that very quickly online. One thing that came up in recent days, even though uh, agencies that are part of the executive branch, like Treasury and IRS, are following uh, the president's the presidential memorandum to uh, not withhold Social Security taxes for the remainder of this year on your pay, we found out that the Postal Service, which people forget is a quasi-independent agency tied to the federal government, has now chosen not to go along with that presidential memorandum. But we also, uh, and I want you to talk about this, IRS has uh, sent out their frequently asked questions, which they do often, but there's something they're not recommending. What's that? Yeah, first off, I, I want to tip my hat to the Post Office Board of Governors who took a look at this and said, huh, so we're going to not take out Social Security and then they have to pay it back. Why is why are we doing this? It doesn't make any sense. So I tip my hat for common sense breaking out in a governmental agency. I'm always happy when that happens. Um in the IRS frequently asked questions, they talked about doing uh, not doing something that we have said is not a good way to uh, protect yourself on this issue. Uh, the frequently asked questions are not recommending that you increase your federal withholding or make estimated tax payments to take care of the Social Security tax that's not being withheld right now. The reason being is what we've stated previously. You don't know when you're going to get that refund of the additional money that you're sending in. So if they start taking out double in January, then you're going to be short those checks until um, until you actually do get the refund. So again, our recommendation and something I did is I just transferred the money to my savings account, set it up as a recurring transfer through the end of the year. So I've got that money set aside. So if they do come back and say, okay, we're going to take out double, I've got that money that I can send back to my checking account so I'm not harmed by it. And if they say, okay, we, you have the option of paying it by lump sum and don't have to worry about doing the double withholding, 
then I've got that money again set aside to pay it. We have not heard still on how they plan on the repayment of this. We just know that it has to be done by the end of April. All right, so, uh, to be determined, and that's uh, we've been talking about this for weeks, and we still don't have a, a specific answer on that. Uh, there's an OPM survey coming up. Uh, what's NTEU's view on that? Yeah, the FEVS, um, Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, has already started coming out. You get uh, time to do this. You get an invitation. And we strongly encourage folks to do this. This is your chance to speak. People say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, nobody's listening to it. Nobody's looking at this. I've been on an engagement team for the last several years, and I can tell you this is looked at very, very closely. Changes have been made both uh, overtly and behind the scenes because of things that have come out in the survey, trends that we see. So it, your opinion does matter, and we want you to be brutally honest. We want you to say exactly what you're thinking, where the issues are, because if upper-level management isn't told about it, they are going to say, well, nobody ever said anything, so we thought it was fine. We want to shine the light where there are problems, regardless of whether people want to hear it or not. And the best way to do that right now, in this particular instance, is through the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. I want to move on to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I know a lot of people have various views of her. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg has one of the most compelling personal stories you'll ever, ever discover. And I learned a lot about her recent years. She graduated from an Ivy League law school and could not find a job at a law firm in New York City. Nobody would hire her. And that's the way things were in the 1950s and 60s. I'm old enough to remember some of that myself. And so she turned to representing women uh, in the workplace, and we all know what happened. She, was, she wasn't successful every time early on, but she had a tremendous amount of success in standing up for the rights of women in the workplace, within the law, and in many other aspects of, of society. I think there's one part of the story, Duncan, I just want to say very quickly. When President Bill Clinton uh, was charged with filling that vacancy on the Supreme Court, he was very concerned about making sure he had a candidate that would be able to pass the Senate easily. And a very conservative Republican named Orrin Hatch was the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate at that time who handled these Supreme Court nominations, and, and Clinton brought Orrin Hatch in and wanted his thoughts. And it was Orrin Hatch who said, I'll tell you one thing, there's one judge that would get easy confirmation if you choose to nominate her, and that is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, Clinton met with her, loved her, nominated her, and the rest is history. So this as we look at her legacy, I mean, uh, you can talk about a, a variety of things she wrote about, but I really do believe in her, in her position as a judge, both at the you know, lower courts and then in the Supreme Court, is a woman who, and I have two daughters, you have a daughter, all adults now, and you know, a lot of their career choices are available because of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did in her life, and I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. I wholeheartedly agree. This was somebody that was such a fervent 
believer in women's right and advocate for them that, you know, she was, it, it truly touched me when she passed. She had, as we all know, had a long fight uh, with cancer that she eventually succumbed to. But I mean, it, it, it hit me hard when she passed just because I could always point to her for my daughter and saying, you know, there is somebody that you can emulate there. You know, she was a fighter. She made sure that women were always um, had the same rights as men as they should, because, you know, everybody should have the same rights. And for a woman to be treated as a second class citizen, for an African-American to be treated as a second class citizen, those kinds of things are never right. And anybody that tirelessly advocates for them, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg did for women, is is so heartening to see um, that we really should just all take a minute, if you haven't already in this time since she's passed, to just reflect on that a little bit, because this country is a better place because of people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the work that she has done. One last item for this podcast uh, that has to do with HR Connect. Something is changing there. Yeah, actually, this is kind of a good thing. I tried it out yesterday. It came out late in the headlines that said, now if you are on your government computer, you can go to HR Connect, where you get a lot of your information from, can change your contacts, emergency contacts, things of that nature. And just go on there if you've got your smart card in and go directly to the site. You don't have to try and remember, okay, because you're not on it frequently. You're, if you're like me, oh, dear Lord, what is my HR Connect password? I Okay, I'm going to have to reset the password again because I can never remember. Well, they came out and we've got now a direct link to HR Connect. If you're on your government computer that if you're already signed in, you can go directly to it without having to um, do any more uh, passwords. Okay, um, we've got a little over on this uh, podcast. Uh, we usually go about 30 minutes. This is closer to 40, but we had a, a lot to talk about. I do want to say one last thing. Uh, I do um, produce a, a number of series of podcasts. The Chapter 49 podcast is one of them. But if you want others to listen, you think there are other people who might get some use out of our uh, Chapter 49 podcast, uh, again, you'll see all my other podcasts as well, but you can find it uh, just by searching for Podcasts by Larry Lannon. And my last name is spelled L-A-N-N-A-N. Uh, you can find I'm on just about every platform on iTunes. Apple Podcasts just recently got added to Amazon Podcasts, which is a fairly new platform for them. I'm on Stitcher. I'm on SoundCloud. So I'm on a lot of different places where you find podcasts. So just go to podcast by Larry Landon. You'll see them all, but they'll all be the the ones that we are doing for chapter 49 are all labeled as the chapter 49 podcast. So any, any final parting comments before we wrap this up, Duncan? No, I, uh, I appreciate all the work that you do for this. And we encourage people to share these because the information that we give out not only impacts Indiana employees, but many times employees across the country. So feel free to share those. Yeah, I've looked at, yeah. Our, I've looked at our statistics. It's amazing how many people listen to this podcast outside of Indiana. So we are, we're gaining a reputation. Hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> uh, I, you have a very good reputation 
um, on the comments that I receive. My reviews, as always, are mixed, but you know that's my luck. <laughs> Duncan, uh, this wouldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you. So please understand <laughs> that. So uh, again, we uh, that wraps up another chapter forty nine podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. You've been listening to with me. Duncan Giles, chapter president for chapter 49, representing most IRS employees in the state of Indiana. So once again, be safe and be kind.